Hello, dear listener. This is The Optimist in Revolt. Stephen J. Sanderson is a Marine Corps veteran. He's my guest this week. He's the author of the forthcoming book, Calloused Heart. Uh, it deals with faith and suffering, as well as Steve's deployments and transitioning back home uh, after those deployments. I'm super interested in Steve's perspective on faith and how that interacts with national service. Um, Steve's done something that I not only haven't done, but haven't even had the inclination to do. So uh, I do appreciate uh, him for coming on and obviously for his uh, service to our country. Steve, how's it going? I said forthcoming. <laughs> uh, no, but uh, <laughs> all right, everything checks out. Yeah, uh, doing this online makes it things also difficult to you know hear and, and all that stuff. But um, yeah, uh, good. Well, yeah, like I said, I appreciate you coming on. Um, before we get into like the meat part of the talk, uh, what made you want to write a book? Because that is something that's like so yeah. foreign, like to sit down and the discipline required for that. It is. Um, I've actually talked to a lot of people who have had the same inclination. They're like, you know, I just, I feel like I need to write a book. Um, but there's something different when you start taking the steps to go through the grueling process of writing and the hours and hours of reading and research and putting things to paper. It's definitely a discipline. For me, there was just a persistent voice in my head that was like, you need to do this, you need to do this. And I, I couldn't rest without doing some kind of work on it. And it was to the point that even if it was just writing a page, it was able to kind of satiate that voice and be like, good. Like, like there was something in the obedience to that, that I was like, okay, that was pretty fulfilling. I don't think there's anything I can do with this one page. Uh, but it just kept coming back and coming back and coming back to the point that I sat down and I just started writing almost like like blog length kind of things, mm -hmm. like a page or two. And then it turned into just a bunch of these individual documents that I had no idea what to do with. And, and they weren't really all connected. And I finally sat down one day and I was like, well, if this is going to be a book, it's got to be consistent and started with new outlines. And then it just developed into a consistent theme, but it really just started with just writing down thoughts for a while, for probably a year or so. Once you aimed towards writing the book, did you feel like it was pretty clear what the theme was going to be or were you in a situation where it's like, I know there's something here, but it's kind of amorphous until it finally comes together. Yeah, it was more, it was more that like I had no idea really where it was going or what it was going to be about because all of the individual topics I was writing about, I enjoyed, but I wasn't about to write 200 pages on that. Sure. That one thing. I mean, you really have to have a central theme. And so that didn't really come in until maybe halfway. Um, but I knew, God was doing something in my story, especially through the military um, and my experiences after. And I was like, I've got to write this down. And I didn't do it because I wanted to immediately go into being an author or because I was going to make a ton of money. Um, I was just like, I, it, like, if I feel like there's such a presence of God in this, somebody's got to hear this. Even if it's one person, I will enjoy the writing process. I will enjoy producing a tangible book that even if just family can read, uh, and if it blesses other people, great. Um, but yeah, I, I did not have any idea what where it was going. I just kind of started. And when I sat down to consolidate everything into one theme, I think it came about a year later. Okay. Yeah. And I, th I think it's, it's, it's really interesting that from the military perspective, just because I feel as though many people who are younger people, my age and younger and a little older maybe, um, I'm 30, but you know, th mm -hmm. this generation where it's like, there's a tendency to say, to feel like you, my thoughts need to be out there in the world, right? Like there's that, right. that inclination within young people to be like, well, what I'm saying is important. And I think that not to discount other people's experiences, but it's like, okay, you know, like from my perspective, how many middle-class white guys from California who haven't right. really done anything, you know, I've lived a life and everything and I've picked up some wisdom along the way, but, um, but coming from like a Christian military, like how faith and the military service interacts is super interesting to me 
because it's like, well, you actually have gone out and done something and these are actual experiences that you've had and that maybe it is an underserved market is the wrong word. It's too crass of a word, but it's an, it's an underserved um, topic of conversation, I think, within the Christian community as to what it looks like to serve in the military and then how that interacts with your faith. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I definitely agree. Um, I see a lot of that because I'm I'm going to be 35 in a couple months, so I'm I'm with you. I'm about that same age demographic, um, and there there is a lot of that. There is a lot of our generation uh, not feeling heard um, and feeling like we need to leave our mark on the universe, kind of thing. Um, so I think a little bit was that of just hey, I I really want to put something out there. Um, but the other part that I think sealed the deal in making that decision to write this book was the the experiences that I had um, were not being uh, like the principles of them, obviously not the military experience, but even for people outside the military, there were certain life lessons that I got from it that the popular voice was actually going against. Mm. And so it was like, well, this is really weird because there's certain truths about God that I've come to understand. And yet I'm here outside of the military in these communities and people aren't coming to these truths through their own experiences and their own life journeys. And they should, right? Because we're all going toward God's truth from different directions, but we're all going to the same source. So when I saw things deviate from that, I was like, I've got to write this down. Like things are just going off in such a strange direction that it's not that my experience is better, but why, what was it about my experience that got me to that because it seems that other people's similar experiences in the sense of pain and suffering kind of thing. Um, how come that led me to God and how come that's leading people away from God in those experiences? So I think that's the point that I finally was like, I know what my theme is. I know what this book needs to be about. And that became the conduit to like really put this thing in motion and go, okay, I know, I know where this is going. Yeah. And I think that there's, some we'll get to the I, we got to get to the thing, but I'm very yeah, yeah. interested in this. Um, just the idea of like I'm not saying that your book is scripture, so let's. I mean, obviously, I'm not saying that. Okay, but just from the standpoint right. of like sometimes when we read scripture, it's like, well, how does this apply to me, right? Like we go to the, that application point, right? And sometimes the audience isn't you, right? It's mm-hmm. Israel or it's you know the the these various churches in Thessalonica, um, so while it might not be directly to you, the principles, so again, I'm not in the military, but principles that are found there can be applied outside of there, even if it's not a one-for-one correspondence, right? Because sometimes we mm-hmm. jump straight to straight to application when we read the Bible, and that's not great. But the idea of like, well, this is what we know about God's character from the way that he's talking to these people. And so we know that God act, will act in similar ways, if not the exact same way towards right. us. And I feel like the same, what maybe what you're getting at is the, the that principle applies like, well, yeah, it's, there's not a one for one. This is what I learned serving in the military. So you go out and, you know, apply that to your Christian walk, but right. the way the world operates and the way that discipline and spiritual discipline operate is like, yes, these can be applied even if you're not in this exact circumstance. Right. Yeah, I agree. Um, and there's a good line that, uh, a popular pastor said that narrative is not normative, that just mm-hmm. because it happened in the Bible doesn't mean that is the grounds for us to do it here today in this culture kind of thing. There's a principle behind it. And, and I agree. That's what the principle is of it, is this idea that God is not incompatible with the fact that we experience pain and suffering, right? Right. That, that I did philosophical problem of evil. And so my book is really just my example of my experiences of that to show that it is possible that you can have some pretty dark experiences and it doesn't conflict with God. It actually led me toward God. Now it doesn't mean like you said, it's going to be a one for one, but if someone is out there and on that principle alone, just saying, well, because pain and suffering exist, then I can't believe in God. That's right. where I'm saying, no, I don't, I don't agree. Yeah. Yeah. Was that Vody Bachman that said that? Cause I think he said it, it is yeah. to, uh, to David Man. dancing naked, I think. Yes. Yeah, yeah, so you li- you listened to that podcast recently yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, I listened to. Yeah, I listened to too much stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, how how exactly did you become a Christian? Yeah, so I I grew up in church and was raised in um, a small. It was the Nazarene denomination, um, but uh, we didn't we didn't follow so tightly on a lot of the the real manual of the Nazarene church. You um, drank coffee then. 
was that part of it? Yeah, I've I've heard. Yes. Oh wow! I know I know uh, dancing and watching movies was part of the okay. the Nazarene specific doctrine. Now I think that's changed over the years with cultural influence, but we totally had coffee and donuts every okay. Sunday morning. So no, we weren't we weren't super super strict on it, but but it was a small church. I I couldn't say it was more than maybe a hundred people. Um, but that's what I've known most of my life up to high school. Um, and I was listening to a couple of your other podcasts and, and heard some similar journeys as well. Um, and I love the way some people answer because it's like, yeah, that makes sense. Like I had the same thing and you can grow up in it, but at some point it has to be your choice. And I think that's where there's a difference between, you know, growing up in a Christian community and, and taking on the title of being a Christ follower. So for me, I grew up in church, but it was mid high school that that really changed for me. And we had left that church. Um, there were just some internal issues with, with staff and some leadership and things like that. And there was actually a pretty big exodus from the church that left. Um, so it did not end well. And that's all I had really known. And so my parents and a lot of the other parents who had left started our own church and we were meeting at a school and brought a worship leader in and things like that. And I really connected with the worship leader who ended becoming uh, our youth leader that met in a small group at someone's house on Wednesday nights. And um, that re- is what really shaped me um, going through my senior year. Uh, I was meeting in this small group every week, you know, the church, my parents had tried to start, it didn't fully work out and people just lived geographically a little too far to put all the effort into like bringing out chairs and setting things up. It's a lot of work if you don't have a building. Um, I think all churches who've started up know what I'm, know what I'm talking about. Um, And so it turned into a lot of the parents going, Hey, we know where we are in our faith, but the kids the youth, they're the future of the church. And we want to make sure that they have a place where they can grow. And so it kind of just turned into this small group where every, everyone's kids kind of went um, and met at a house, which wasn't that big of a group. Um, but the worship leaders who ended up being our youth leaders, it was a, a guy and his fiance at the time. Um, they were what really shaped me. And I actually started doing a lot of worship music with them, playing guitar, uh, he exposed me to a lot of really cool, like Christian indie type music. Um, and, and that really set a foundation for me that year, my last year of high school, um, for my faith going into the military. And it was just amazing timing, um, to have that understanding of God as a personal relationship and not this, um, pursuing of rules and regulations, this, this became an actual relationship with God that was completely different from everything I had grown up with. Um, so that's really where I'd say it, it started for me. Do you think going into the military, and I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's hard to, to, to judge this sort of thing, I guess, and maybe you shouldn't, but here I am asking the question. Um, but you know, like, uh, I'm going to drop some heavy names here. Solzhenitsyn writes yeah. in, uh, the Gulag Archipelago yep. about how, um, like the Christians were the people with the most hope going mm-hmm. in, into the, into these horrible circumstances. Right. And that's different than the military, right? Because this is something you volunteered to do and, um, right. and, to, and to serve. But how did going into the military and having the faith kind of just become your own? Um, one, could you imagine how it would have been different if you'd still kind of been living on, for lack of a better way to put it, your parents' faith? Um, and then two, did you oh, know, yeah. it, was there a heavy religious, uh, presence within, uh, like boot camp and stuff? So, um, yeah, those are like great questions. Um, if I had just gone in and it was on just what I had grown up with and known, um, it would have been really difficult because for me, it was kind of, that's what you do on Sunday. I believe this because that's what I've been taught. Um, even though I know truth, I didn't understand truth. Um, so if I had gone in on that premise, it probably would have faltered and I probably would have strayed away from it for a bit, especially with the extreme stress, uh, and the hostility of the environment, right? Because I, I signed my contract to go Marine Corps infantry in 2003, and that was five months after we invaded Iraq. So I knew exactly where I was going. I was going right to the front line. Um, I even had to have my parents sign for me because I was 17. 
Um, so I signed before my senior year. Like I knew where I was going. And then by 2004, I was in boot camp. And then by 2005, I was in Iraq. Um, so I, I got the fast pass. Sure. Um, and, and yes, my faith definitely would have been shaken. Um, there were some conditions that made it really difficult on going into my first deployment that I think without that foundation, uh, I really don't know where I would be today. Um, so going into like in one example I'll give you is like right before my first deployment, there was a gal I was dating through my senior year. Um, and I came home one of my last weekends, uh, to see her. And she was actually wearing a ring that someone else had given her and she had gotten engaged and had this whole other relationship that I didn't know about. Um, and that wrecked me. Um, I was also processing that I would probably not come home from this deployment and was already saying goodbye to family and friends. And mm-hmm. now I have this person, um, not only abandoned me, but had just completely thrown it in my face of like, I don't want to be with you through this. This is too hard. I already found somebody else. And by the time I got into country in, and we went to uh, Ramadi on my first deployment. So it was very heavy fighting in uh, late 2005. Um, within the first week of being there, we took our first casualty within the platoon and they told us about it on the briefing of my first patrol. So I'm getting ready to roll out the gate on this patrol and they're saying, Hey, so-and-so was killed. I'm sitting in my head going, I'm trying to process what's going on at home. And now I have this, and now I'm going out into the city. And then on that patrol, the truck in front of me got hit by an IED and was blown up. So I get back to base and I'm sitting there completely numb, just a full apathy. Just, I, I didn't know where to go. Um, and I think if I had just been on that faith of this is what you do, it would have completely collapsed at that point. I mean, at that point, it was just like, God doesn't care. He's not here at all. Everyone's left me. Everyone's dying. I'm probably going to die. I mean, it was an absolutely hopeless moment for me. And the fact that, you know, I had had that year to make it my own and to be in relationship with God, I really felt like I was in that that moment of crisis, like where I think it was Peter that, that uh, Jesus was talking to where when everyone's leaving and, and he knows his death is coming and he's like, well, you don't want to leave too, do you? And Peter's like, Lord, where, where will we go? Mm. Like we, we have nothing else. Right. And I think that that line came to me and it was just like, I don't have anything else. Like I don't have the youth leader to go talk to. I don't have family to go talk to. I don't have something I can go do outside of this. Like I'm here, like, this is it. And in a way it was God saying, I'm going to remove all these distractions and, and everything that you think is me. And it's just going to be me and you. And so that is really that pinnacle moment that I was like, that I know this is going to last. I know I have stepped into that relationship and I'm very thankful for that year before joining that made that personal connection and not just a, here's a guideline of rules because I could have opened the Bible at that point and been like, I, I don't know what to make of this. Right. And, and it's a connection to something transcendent, right? It's like there's truth that exists right. rather than just like, you know, because it obviously like, and like you're talking about a lot is that like the grief is important and, and the dealing mm-hmm. with that stuff is important. But that all points to what is ultimate truth, which is God, you know, and so if it's it, it would be very easy to get like, I feel like emotion without a connection to truth is is useless. It doesn't help you at all. Whereas mm-hmm. if your emotion, if you're able to grieve and say, all right, you know, God, I, you got it, right? Like, I don't know what's going on. I can't see it. I got this finite brain, but it's you and me and I know your character and I know that you're good. Um, then you can kind of have the ability to, the, to then grieve and say, okay, God, you gave me these emotions for a reason. And it points you more towards the character of God right. rather than just, just sitting there being, you know, <laughs> you know, right. dealing with really heavy stuff. Right. I feel like sad is yeah. too small of a word, but um, yeah. Uh, it's it's it, the intensity can lead to peace i guess is what is what i mean yeah um what song is best um hmm there's uh, i have a line from one song on a, a tattoo i don't know if you can see that in arabic um it's one of my favorite that i've always come back to because of the experience that i had with it I mean, I could probably name you like 50 songs that are best, but uh, if I had to narrow it to one, probably the one that I have the 
the most experience with. And it was actually after that first patrol when I sat down to try and process everything that had been going on. And one of the ways that I, I dealt with everything was music. And so I was always throwing in headphones, just, just escaping through all the music I'd collected, you know, over the year or two leading up to that deployment. And I put on a song called The Widow by a band called As Cities Burn. And it was like a, it was a hardcore Christian band. Um, and after, you know, watching the truck in front of me blow up and things like that, I just needed screaming in my mm -hmm. ears. And so I threw it in and I was going through these tracks and it was just screaming and heavy. And, you know, it, it actually was like very pacifying. Like it calmed me down to hear that, to see that all of this angst and pain, like hearing someone else release these emotions in a musical outlet. Like I love that sound, that dissonance, that chaos, but it got to this song and it's like the, the slowest song on the album, no screaming. And it talks about this uh, scenario, which I assume is either from his perspective as a son or somebody's, but he talks about this dad who walks out on this family. Um, and the lyrics he says to uh, start it is he says, Dead man, were you ever alive, or was I just a seed buried deep inside some woman you wed right before you crawled out of her bed and crept down the hall? And then he kind of transitions what he's he's saying here in the sense of like having this conversation with him. And he's like, did you think of me? Did you even for a second hesitate in the doorway? It's just something I'd like to know, even though I'd still love you, if you told me that you just walked away. And what's absolutely fascinating about that is he's talking about this dad who's completely changed his family's life because of his own selfishness and, and drug use and things like that and walked out. And then after this line of him saying, I just want to know because I'd still love you, even if you told me you just abandoned us. So th that kind of caught me in that moment where I was like, wow, this person has every justification to be angry and to be mad. And yet he's telling him, I'd still love you even if you told me that you just hated us and you just walked out, right? And, and he reflects back to God with this line after saying that where he says, my God, what a world that you love. And so that's actually what this, what this tattoo says in Arabic was, is uh, my God, what a world you love. Because everything that I had seen going on there um, and all the training that had built me up to say, you know, this is an enemy and, and, you know, it's just kill, 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 hate, hate, blood. You know, it's just all this infantry culture. And then you get over there and realize there's actually you know, really great people living here. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I did was I put it in the language that that culture would understand to realize that God is bigger than this scenario. And so it was, it was through this song that really brought me to an understanding of God in a way that I needed it right at that moment. And I thought it was just a a beautiful interplay of the way everything came together. Um, and uh, I forgot what, what verse it, it comes from. It'll probably come to me, but that's probably one of the biggest ones for me. Um, outside of that, I could probably tell you some lines from some worship songs, but uh, uh, I think as far as hymns, it is well. And the story behind that has always been a pretty amazing one because this, the same resilience to not walk away from God as seen in that, you know, mm. of, of losing so much and still saying, I'm content, I'm at peace because I have God. I have the thing that is most valuable to me. Yeah. And I think the theme, like you're saying, the theme kind of between those two things is like that commitment, right? And the right. commitment that God has to us um, from the standpoint of like you're saying, like the world hates God. Like that's very clear right. in scripture. It's not like the world is ambivalent towards God. It's like they hate God. He's mm -hmm. not real and they hate him, of course. Mm -hmm. um, but, and so the idea of like, man, God, you, there's no reason outside of his goodness for him to want to, right? That he saves us because it's his pleasure to do so, right? Like he, right. it's for his glory and it's for his pleasure. And it's like, we don't deserve any of it that he would save one person is one person too many. If we we're talking about mm -hmm. just who earned, you know, um, I mean, I, I think I might have mentioned this before, but um, it's the idea that you know God only ever killed one innocent person, and it's in the New Testament, and it's Jesus, and that you know the rest of us, if for any of us to not get exactly what we deserve is ultimate mercy, and so for Him to look at us lying in our own filth and say. Mm -hmm you know what, let me help you out there. 
uh, is right. like that's an incredible thing. Yeah. And yeah. and just as a side note, I did I was involved very heavily in the uh, Central California hardcore scene, Christian okay. hardcore scene. So I know what you're talking <laughs> about. Um, that's uh, awesome. I, yeah, I remember having a, I had a friend. Um, I played mostly in like indie bands and stuff, but I was tangential to the hardcore scene. I had lots of friends in there and stuff. And I had yeah. a friend of mine who said, I don't understand these Christian hardcore bands. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, how can you scream, right, that you love Jesus in such like a, <laughs> you know, a, a rough sounding way? It's like, and I, at the time I was like, yeah, that makes sense. It should, you should only say, you should sound pretty. But it's like, Jesus was a man and he said lots of, he had different tones for different situations and, and to say there's only one right way. Now, I don't think necessarily we need hardcore bands on Sunday morning, right? Yes. But yeah. there's a time and place for, for, to express these things. And I think that, you know, I, and I am old, so I can't really do it anymore, but it's like, you know, <laughs> that, that whole, like getting like the, that Christian hardcore thing, I think there's some legitimate things going on there and and dealing with some legitimate pain of that all teenagers deal with because you're angsty and you're a teenager and you just want to yeah. break stuff and if you can get you can channel that in the right way you're in actually a, actually in a pretty good agreed. spot agreed yeah. yeah totally uh um yeah go ahead yeah um I, there was definitely some conflict like when i listened to it my mom's like what what is this you know like like why do you listen to this and like i don't know how to explain it i just i really enjoy it um, but you're right. Yeah. Like I, I wouldn't see it on a Sunday morning. Like, I don't think that's the emotional tone that brings communal worship together. Right. You know, but I mean, for the, for the internal angst, you know, there's, that's that emotion that needs to be purged. And I think people are just so afraid of aggression that we don't ever talk about positive outlets to release that. And if we can do that through music and that expression, that's actually a great way to channel that, you know, like with Romans, I think 826, where it says the spirit intercedes for us with wordless groans. Like there is an emotion that can't be expressed through words and, and there's an angst there. Um, and also I think Ralph Waldo Emerson has a quote where he says, sometimes a scream is better than a thesis, you know, and that's that recognition that we feel things that just cannot be logically expressed in rational ways. And sometimes it's those outbursts. And if we have a way to do it musically and creatively, I just love the blend of that. I don't listen to it as much anymore, you yeah. know, but, uh, but every now and then I, it comes up. Yeah. And I think that there is, while it's not necessarily meant for congregational worship, there is that camaraderie that goes into going to a hardcore show and screaming with your friends and yelling with right. your friends and punching the air because, yeah. <laughs> and, and I think that you're right about aggression and how, what are the positive outlets for aggression? Because we're going to want to be aggressive. So how are we going to do that? Mm -hmm. I think about, you know, I was a wrestler in high school and just how much peace I felt out there on the mat trying to right. put a guy on his back. Like right? That's a very peaceful and serene moment for me because I'm able to channel this aggression into something. They're saying, you can do it. Don't hurt the guy, but, you know, <laughs> do what you have to do. Right. And, and that that is such a, a wonderful thing to give a, especially, uh, give a young man to say, Here's a here's an outlet. Here's where you're allowed to do this. Here's the space to do it. Now don't go do it in the streets. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh what person who you've never met and is outside of the Bible has had the biggest impact on your spiritual life? Um this one is is more recent. Um as I've started the process of this book and really been doing a lot of research. Um you mentioned him earlier, but Vodi Bakum uh, has come up in a lot. And, uh, I think it's because for the last close to 15 years, I've been in a church that's really gone down the route of losing a lot of its core theology and, and mm -hmm. core structure, um, that tape to come across that and to hear it. I was like, I just want to sit down and have a conversation with this guy. Cause I have so many questions and there are so many people out there that have their master of divinity or a pastor's that I, I still don't feel like they can answer the questions. Like, I, I don't know what it is about this loss of intellectual pursuits that's happening within the church, but he just hit things where I was like, that is not politically correct, but it is so biblically sound. Um, so he would definitely be, be one of them. Yeah. Um, there's, there's another guy that recently passed away um, and un un some unfortunate stuff came up about it, but Ravi Zacharias, I really liked a lot of his videos. And then um, as of last year, it actually came out that there was some 
sexual misconduct and abuse, which was like really disheartening. Um, cause that threw me off. I'd seen so many videos yeah. and really been able to answer a lot of questions about scripture. Um, but it really does point to the, the darkness going to war against light and people who stand for something, you know, they're human too. But at the same time, like those type of mistakes, it's not like he got caught stealing something at a store and it's something right. petty. I mean, those are some serious issues, but, um, I, I think those realms, like I would have loved to have met him, um, pre any of this, uh, but Vody Bakum has really been shaping a lot of my writing recently too. Yeah. I'd, uh, about both of those guys, Ravi Zacharias is an interesting one because it, I think it shook a lot of people when all that stuff came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just like, well, what do we do with that? And, and ultimately it's like, well, we, there's a reason we don't worship people. Right. right? And, and I mean, yeah, reading the report and stuff, it's like what he did was straight up evil <laughs> like there's there's yeah. no way around that right uh, and it's just it's it's he was not a person who necessarily like i enjoyed his talks and stuff but he wasn't a person who like shaped my faith necessarily like he did he didn't you know what i mean like he was just wasn't one of those guys mm-hmm. that spoke to me and yeah. but for people who were in that situation or people who like listened to him and that's kind of what brought them to christ it's like man that's tough but you realize that god uses some flawed people really like beyond flawed people um, to, because it's not like what he was saying wasn't true. It's just that maybe he wasn't living as if it was true, um, necessarily. But right. with, with Vody Bauckham, man, that guy, the first video I watched of him, I was like, this is blowing my mind. Yeah. Uh, and I think that a lot of, I think a lot of young men, especially look to him. Like, I think that we, we have this, uh, this tendency towards like, and I don't mean this in like the way that, gosh, words get mixed up what they mean but like Mm -hmm. this idea that like intellectual christianity like the intellectual backbone of christianity has been like all the masculinity has been taken out of it right and there's there's been like because vody bakum is loving and aggressive at the same time and he's presenting the truth and so he comes out there like here's what it is here's the truth and here's how you know we can find it in scripture and like i don't I don't care. And the thing is, because I've, I heard him talk recently, and also he's hospitalized now, so we should be praying for him yeah. Um, yeah. and all that stuff that's going on with him with the heart failure. But um, I heard him at a conference recently saying, like, listen, I talk about race a lot, and that's not what I want to do, but that's my spot in the wall to guard, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was just kind of talking about how he kind of wishes that he could just, like, people could hear him just preach his expository sermons <laughs> out of the Bible. Mm-hmm. But but I think that he is a person who is honest, right? And because he'll because he talks about like the dangers of the critical race theory or whatever in the church, but he also isn't shy about here's where I've experienced racism in my life. So he's not like he's not necessarily he's saying it's dangerous in the church. It's still a thing that happens, but we need to not have that become an idol. Um, yeah, and I, and I think that that's the big thing for me. I heard him talk about like when someone asked what what the biggest danger in the church was, he said idolatry. I'm like, mm. wow, like that's no one would answer that question, but I think it was mm. it was a really true answer. Yeah, he's a he's quite a guy. Yeah, there was a book I was reading recently that talked about that, and I never looked at idolatry the same way. Um, he, he may be talking specifically on the context of race under the banner of of ideology and uh, idolatry, which is really interesting um because i've never seen it that way but even just looking at it generally in the way idolatry is so many other things um the way this book explained it was that what idolatry is and the reason why it's such a problem and why it's in the moral law of the ten commandments um is because idolatry is the de-godding of god it's humans trying to take that place and take that authority and and it goes all the way back to the fall right because what it what it is is that temptation wasn't um, that, you know, it would, it would make you this or that. It was specific to, if you eat this, you will be like God. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the temptation that caused the fall of humanity was that competition with God. And so it, idolatry is a big thing. Yeah. And, and what he was talking about, like he presented it as race, but then the larger issue that he kind of pointed to was that it's our desires become mm-hmm. our idols, right? So what do I think the church should look like becomes more important than what should the church look like according to scripture. Right. And like right. you're saying that like it's a 
is the, the, the dethrone, like trying to put us in the place of God. And that's, that's dumb if you really think about it, because I'm the worst and I don't want to be God. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to be in charge of things. And anybody who does think they should be want to be in charge of things shouldn't be in charge of things. Right, right. Um, yeah. Uh, what? Speaking of this, what do you think is the biggest challenge facing the church today? Um, one of the things I see, I think, is this progressive Christianity. Um, there's a couple different terms for it. I think some people say liberalism or liberal theology or liberal Christianity or progressive Christianity, and it's not it's not terms that are necessarily political in nature. Like right. I'm not talking about politically left or right. That's what I'm just talking. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not making a political statement. Those are just the terms they use. Um, but with that, with progressive Christianity, what it is, is it's this, like you were saying, the view of what we want the church to look like. And what that really is, is going through the Bible and saying, well, we like this type of Jesus and these kind of things, but we're not going to really deal with these other areas that we, you know, have some conflict with in our recent times and we're just going to talk about the grace and mercy Jesus and not the judge and King Jesus. Um, and I was actually, I was actually bashed on a podcast for like a few minutes recently on a pretty big podcast of a church that I went to for a while. Um, they didn't name me by name, but it's like the context of what they were saying were the comments that I had made. And what I was talking about was theology being greater than culture, right? We have to be grounded in biblical principles um, and that is what shapes culture. So we're not separate from culture. Like there is a clear, you know, intertwining of Christianity or Christ and culture, but it's Christ that should define culture and not the other way around. And progressive Christianity kind of gets that flipped because it looks at the positive aspects of Jesus. Um, and, and we get churches that are amazing to go to and they have great worship and great presentations and very inspiring talks, you know, that, that every talk sounds like a Ted talk. Right. But, but when it comes to people taking the faith that they're kind of learning and gaining from that and going about their normal lives, the bottom falls out. Right. And so many people come across crisis and then all of a sudden they're leaving the church. They're walking away from the faith because there's no substance to it because we've lost the principles of scripture. So I think the biggest problem that we're facing is this lack of real intellectual pursuit to understand the non-negotiable principles of scripture. Um, and some people are kind of are, are refining it and, and are, are reconnecting to it on their own. But I think a majority of churches today um, have gone down the, we want the fun church, um, not the one that's, that's really talking about some hard issues. Yeah. I, th- I think that, um, you know, it was, it's been coming for a long time. I think that it started out with um, like, not understand biblical illiteracy essentially like not being able Mm -hmm. to to really focus on the bible and then with progressive christianity what you have is this thing where it's like well we're not so sure the bible's inerrant either and you know we don't think it's necessarily infallible and it's like well then what are you basing your faith on right right like if you don't believe that the book is true and you're saying well my faith is based on a book that i don't necessarily think is true then what are you doing and if you're picking and choosing then you're in a situation where it's like you're not understanding how life works and like the good with like, it was interesting. Cause you, you, you said, um, they, the positive parts of Jesus. Right. And I kind of winced at that in my head, but then I realized what you meant, which is like what they view as the positive parts of Jesus. Right. We would say all of Jesus right. is positive, right? Because Jesus is just, um, right. And so like, you know, justice is part of, of like, you're saying who he is, he is the judge. Um, and so it's like the, the taking out of, Taking out all the supernatural, like nineteenth century nineteenth century liberalism, with the taking out of all, well, we want to get rid of all the supernatural stuff, and there's a tendency to want to explain away anything that doesn't make sense that we can't explain scientifically. Like, well, it was probably this, and the way that that when when the Red Sea parted, there was actually there's studies show that there was a hurricane at that time, and it's like <laughs> we don't need all of that. That's not right, that's right, not right. the point of this. Um, um, then when you start to strip away God from the Bible, you're left with a social club. And social clubs, unless you have a common um, set of values, you're done. And your values can't just be love everybody because that's too amorphous, right? Right. What do we need to define what we mean by love everybody. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, right. And, and the biblical definition of love, that, that there's justice and there's discipline within love. And, mm-hmm. you know, if it, if it offends people, then people see it as it's not justice. And it's like, that's not true. Like, 
Jesus was extremely offensive, but you know, he was the epitome of love. So right. it's not about offense. Um, and to go, you know, more specifically, like, like what you're saying, um, thanks for clarifying that all the aspects of Jesus are positive. Um, even the parts that are uncomfortable right, are yes. positive. And yes. so what they're avoiding are the uncomfortable truths of Jesus. Um, and one of the examples is like on this podcast toward the end, I mean, I listened to it. I, I didn't care that they disagreed with me. It's not a big deal. Um, but what really got me was that this church I invested in for like 15 years, you know, the, the pastor and his son were on this podcast and toward the end, they started saying some things that were very clearly not from scripture. And he started saying that he had an issue with the terminology of King Jesus, which I thought was really hmm. weird. I've never heard that. Um, and what he was saying was, you know, he likes this servant Jesus and that's who Jesus was in this physical life. And we need to see him as that, but they didn't like this, this King, this ruler, this dictator. And it was too politically intertwined with some politics and not scripture. And there was never a reference to scripture throughout the entire podcast. Um, and, and having been there, even though they didn't say it, I kind of knew the background of it because, you know, the pastor had said he would never teach from the book of revelation on the main stage, which hmm. I was like, what? And it took a while to understand it. His reason for it was it's, it's a little confusing. It's very prophetic. It's talking about things to come and we don't know specifically what this may mean. Um, and I can kind of understand it on the aspect, but it doesn't mean you don't teach from it. There's things yeah. we don't understand about all of scripture and we still teach on it, you know? So it's not really an excuse not to teach from it, but what he was really showing is that we don't want to get people focused on this idea that there is a judgment to come, that the second coming mm. of Christ is going to happen and that God's going to judge the world or that Christ is going to judge the world because it conflicts with the narrative we've been pushing of this grace and mercy Jesus of the New Testament. We don't want to talk about that he's actually calling us to repentance, to change, to transformation. And so when you see that and say, hey, we don't teach from Revelation, you also never hear the word sin in any of the sermons, right? So there's never a transformation within the church. It's amazing. It has awesome worship. It's a beautiful place to be, um, but it's very open to new people coming in, but very difficult in its retention of people. Like it loses people all the time. And that's because the substance is gone. If you don't lead people toward change, then you get this church where people come in and they openly will admit that they are still atheists, that they're still Buddhist, Muslim, gay, whatever it is, there's no transformation of people. And yet they come in and they're doing all of this under the banner of Christ, which makes it even worse because now that's the image of Christianity that people get. Yeah. A few things. <laughs> One, just in regard to like this, because uh, um, I had my brother-in-law on last week and we were talking about uh, seeker-friendly churches, right? Which, mm -hmm. you know, is a term that people use. And uh, But I, I was listening to something from Sinclair Ferguson recently, and he pointed out that the early church, as written about in the book of Acts, that they did not do evangelism during their what we'd call church services, right? That wasn't their time of the evangelism. Church is for believers to come and become edified and to learn the scripture. Now, there's nothing wrong with somebody, you know, being open to like having a program, non, uh, you know, new believers come in or, or people who are just checking it out. That's great. But that the point of church is to edify. It's churches for Christians, uh, you know, more or less. Um, so I think that that's that's worth mentioning. There was something else I was going to say, but it must not have been that important. Oh, Revelation. <laughs> it's funny because Revelation is important. Um, mm -hmm. Just that, like, again, not to harp on Vody Bauckham all day, but he said that, you know, when when people talk about, well, I like the New Testament God versus the Old Testament God is the way people put it a lot. Yeah. He's like, read all the way to the New Testament, read all the way to the end of the New Testament. And then and that's that's Jesus, too. So you can't like say, well, there's such a difference in God's personality. He's the same the whole time. Um, and it, it always, I always think it's interesting when people talk about Jesus versus God in the Old Testament. It's like, well, we believe in a triune God. Jesus yes. is eternal. So right. all that stuff that God the Father is doing in the Old Testament, Jesus is right, right along right. the side of him. And he's doing right. it too. Um, it, but yeah, I think that, that the idea of, because we're so uh, temporal and like, 
we like the physical things in front of us. We only think about the physical Jesus. Here he was, and this is what he did while in, during his ministry. Right. But, but he also, every time he encountered somebody committing sin, he said, don't sin anymore afterwards. Like, it's like, right. you know, it's, it's not just show mercy on these people. Like, I'm showing mercy on you. But it's also like, but you over there who is getting the mercy shown on you, stop sinning. Stop doing what you're doing. Right. I think that's important to remember. Yes. Yeah. Because, you know, Jesus was showing people that, hey, look, I love you. But at the same time, this love has a direction, right? Mm -hmm. It's pointing you towards something. It's not just aimless love for the sake of your feelings or so that you don't feel bad about yourself. Like that's half of it basically saying like, hey, you don't need to live in this shame, right? But this is the way. And so he's always calling them to something. And, and the modern church has has really gone into this message of like, well, it's just love. Jesus just said to love people. And it's like, you're loving people to call them to something, you know, right. because they're, they're not going to find wholeness outside of that. Right. And so there's, there, there has to be momentum and movement toward that. And uh, I was, one of the books I was reading recently too, was Christ and Culture Revisited with uh, by DA Carson. And he said the same thing. He says, God, like Jesus is still part of that Trinity. Like you said, you know, he was there at Sodom and Gomorrah. He was there at the creation yeah. of the earth, you know? So this idea that like, we only want to focus on new Testament Jesus is, is really just a cop out so that we don't hurt people's feelings. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, we really need to deal with the fact that what God is showing us is not just violence. If we just look at the context, he's showing us justice. Like God cares so much about justice and he's calling people toward righteous living. Yeah. So that from the beginning to the end, like he stepped into human history as Jesus and interacted this way with us because he's showing us the model that we can physically follow. But there's so much more to that personality, right? It's it's right. Like being able to say, yes, I'm a father, but I'm also a son and I'm also a brother. Like we have multiple roles and who I am around my parents is different from who I am at work, right? And it's not a conflict. It's just that's who's necessary in yes. these environments, right? And so you get the parts that are relevant to that. And Jesus was very much relevant to the, this is the kind of living that I'm calling you to. Um, and then in certain facets, and this is something I, I talk a little bit about in the book because it's relevant, but when it comes to violence, aggression, things like that, we have the rulers and enforcers, um, the law enforcers, the military and things like that, where in those contexts, this is where you as humans are able to act violently and things like that for the sake of justice, right? So it's everything is very contextual in what kind of authority we have as humans, but it all models Jesus. So, yeah. Yeah, and we want a blanket statement, one size fits all. This is what we right. do, be the same in every situation. That's not how anyone is. Um, and just Revelation being complicated, real quick, uh, yep. is it is super complicated, and it's something that I think that, but to not preach on it because it's complicated is a mistake. I think that you preach on it with humility, with the idea of, hey, this is complicated, and I've studied it a lot, and I could still be wrong about what I'm saying, but here's... What here's an interpretation that makes sense, right? You want a coherent interpretation, and you preach on it. But like even R.C. Sproul, who is like one of the like most stubborn people that's ever lived mm -hmm. and knows everything, you know, reading his books and his when he gets to eschatology, it's always like, and this is what I think, and this is the historical thing, and this is you know here's some good evidence for this. But I could like his tone changes when he starts to talk about eschatology. Mm -hmm. And it, I think that is it's something that's that's missing when you get to super complicated stuff like that. That you know, I think a better tact is present multiple points of view. Right? Mm -hmm. You say this this is something that makes sense. This is what these people believe, and here's good reasons for this, and here's what these people believe, and here's good reasons for this. But you don't just ignore it because right. it's it's hard. Because guess what? Christianity's hard because life is hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what do you put on your hot dogs? Man, I haven't eaten a hot dog in a long time, but the first one that comes to mind is chili and cheese okay. and, and, and the shredded cheese. Sure. Um, now, I, don't get me wrong. Like, I'm not against a good, like, Wiener Schnitzel chili cheese hot dog with, like, mm -hmm. the square the nacho cheese, cheese, you know. The I would not say it's, like, anything quality, but it, there is something really good about it. There's um, something good about Wiener Schnitzel, yeah. Yeah, and I haven't had it in a long time. Like, I've, you know, you get older and your body goes, hey, you can't do this every day. Um. But, you know, I also grew up like with, with Dodger dogs, like going to Dodger games and, uh, 
you know, they, they didn't really have that. Like when you have communal condiments, you can't really do the chili and cheese kind no. of thing. It would be a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> um, but with those kind, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty plain. Like I'm not a fan of onions, but I'll do the, the, uh, relish, like, uh, ketchup, mustard. And, and that's, that's about it for me. If there's cheese, great, but I will, I'm going to say something controversial right now. And maybe it's my bias, okay. <laughs> but being from the Bay area, uh, when my sister was dating her now husband, I think they were just dating or maybe they were engaged. We went down to Dodger stadium cause he was, he's from Southern California and we're from the Bay area. So we hate the Dodgers of course. Mm-hmm. Um, cause that's the law here. Um, yeah. <laughs> I was not impressed with the Dodger dog. I was all excited to get it. And I was just like, it's just, it's, I mean, it's but it was kind of cold. It was a, just a long hot dog and it was kind of cold. Right. And right. I think that's, that was what, what made it for me. It was like, ah, this is not, and you know, you build it up in your mind because people talk about it and right, right, we, right. we snobs up here in San Francisco. It's like, we, it's like they have everything but a regular hot dog <laughs> at the ballpark, right. know, garlic fries or pizza or like just so many, so many, uh, different food options, but I just want a yeah. hot dog. Yeah, well, that that's when you go to In and Out after, and it makes everything yes, better. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that is absolutely right. But um, yeah, <laughs> what do you think is the best argument against Christianity, and why are you not convinced by it? Um, so I kind I have kind of a category for that because I think there's a, there's so many different ones within this same mm-hmm. category, and so it's easier to talk about it as the theme. But I think the the main issue is this intellectual rationalization for Christianity. There's so much of this uh, atheistic Sam Harris type arguments against Christianity because it doesn't logically make sense. And this is why, um, and that stems all the way down to, well, if there's suffering and pain in the world, then there obviously isn't a God who cares, right? There's a lot of, a lot of these arguments, I think have the central theme of, it doesn't make sense to me. Um, So, how can you really say it? Like scientifically it doesn't line up or this and that. And I mean, there, there's some pretty interesting arguments. A lot of things that I'm like, I don't know. That's a great question. Like I would be stuck on that too. Um, but I'm not convinced because first of all, I believe in the truth of the Bible, whether I understand it or not. Right. Because I've made that commitment that I'm going to have that childlike faith. And if God says so, then I'm going to trust it. Right. And there's some, old popular arguments. I forgot who it is that said it. That's just like, you know, if it, if it turns out to be false, then what have you really lost? But if it turns out to be true, you have everything to lose. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of the, the premise that I start on. And so, you know, as I hear these things, I try to research them and, you know, sometimes I have great answers and sometimes I don't, um, and I'm just as lost as them, but the difference is there's, I'm never going to completely rationalize God or Jesus to make sense to anyone, right? There, it needs to have structure and an intellectual substance to it, but there's also an emotional and intimate personal connection that people need to make. And so when I, anytime I hear these arguments, what's missing is that genuine pursuit that they are going to God saying, show me who you are. Mm. So I think if they really did that, I think that connection would be made. So that's why I'm not convinced that those arguments are really valid is because they stay within the box of intellectualism. And what you're really doing is you're, you're putting God in a box and saying, until he makes sense here, then he's not going to, I'm not going to accept him. Yeah. And and I'm saying you need to step out of the box. Right. Well, and I think that a lot of the times we, it's hard because, you know, there's like a classical approach to apologetics and there's the presuppositional approach to apologetics and you can use either one. I think they're both useful. Um, I might be in the minority of people who think that they're both useful because usually people <laughs> fall into one of two camps. Yeah. Um, but the idea of it's like, okay, well, you're saying what I believe doesn't make sense. Okay. Let's shelve that for a second. What you believe equally doesn't <laughs> make sense, right? Right. Like, and it's an interesting thing where it's – I you get these people who – and I think Sam Harris specifically and, and those kind of new atheists – are more well-reasoned than this, but the the reduction of the argument is basically you believe in an invisible man in the sky. How, like, what a fairy tale you believe in, right? And I look at that and I say, okay, you believe something came from nothing. So I'm not sure which is more likely as far as, as, you know, what is more reasonable, if you just want to talk about what's reasonable. And I think that you're right that these people have, have not, they don't genuinely seek the truth, right? The Bible says no one, no man seeks after God. 
right? Mm-hmm. That that um, you know, from my my Calvinistic perspective over here, it's like, well, the, they're not in the elect, and the Holy Spirit hasn't opened them up to and softened their heart, but. But regardless, it's like these people don't want to believe in God. I saw a debate um, between William Lane Craig and uh, I forget who the other guy was, but and it was basically like he said, you know, um, I think that it was a, a hallucination that the apostles saw the risen Jesus. And he said, okay, well, what, what would happen if God appeared to you? And he's like, well, y- you would think it was just a hallucination if you saw God too, because you just don't want to believe in God. Yeah. Was that Christopher Hitchens? Uh, I don't think it was Christopher Hitchens, but it was... I, I remember it, seeing that. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. And the whole crowd went nuts because he pretty yeah. much just said, you know, if God revealed himself to me, then I'd, I'd know it. And it's like, well, isn't that the mystical? You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I agree. I think there's there's still faith on their side, not in God, mm-hmm. but in the theories that they have in science and things like that. And it's like, this is really more of a debate of where you're choosing to put your faith and beliefs. Yeah. You know, there was a really good podcast I listened to recently where the professor of this class has this assignment for his students when he first starts a class and he tells them to go find people with PhDs, either other professors or people who have their doctorate who don't believe in the Holocaust. And they're like, what? You know, he said, it makes them really uncomfortable. He's like, but what they find is that there are people out there with doctorate degrees that don't believe the Holocaust exists. And he says, my whole point is to show you that just because you have a degree or you have letters next to your name, it doesn't give you this authority to be any more right than what truth is. So I think it comes down to the same thing is even when it comes to science and theories and things like that, there may be more of that academic backing to it, Mm -hmm. but God's truth is still God's truth. You know, whether we defend it adequately or not, there's still truth there. And so there's a level of faith that we're never going to understand at all, but it takes that willingness to say, I'm going to choose to believe this. And not because it is completely rational and it makes sense to me, but because I believe this is correct. This is right. And, and that's where that gap is. And in that pursuit of our faith and it growing, we still look for these answers. We still pursue it. Um, you know, but I, I think that where they're stuck is they're stuck in this, like, it has to logically make sense to me. Um, and, and they're never going to get that if, if they don't make that decision themselves. So it's, it's always an interesting debate. I mean, I love the, the intellectual topics that they go through and, and how they word things. And it really makes you think about science and Christianity and how the Bible and everything intertwines. And it definitely strengthens my faith. Um, but I can see where a lot of people get stuck on that issue and make those arguments of, well, I've had pain. Well, I've had this and that. And I don't believe that, you know, there's a God because of this. And it's like, okay, well, let's just break that down logically. If there's all this pain and suffering and you don't believe God exists. Okay. Then there's no God. Does pain and suffering still exist? Well, then it is, is it his fault? You know? So, well, and why is pain and suffering bad? If there's no God either, right. right? Like, why why are you making a moral judgment? And I think that's that's the biggest defeater for a lot of the new atheists, where it's like, well, you know, if your God is real, then He's done all this evil stuff. It's like, how are you saying anything's evil? And you're living as if you were a Christian for the most part, right? Now, there's yeah. you're sinning, right, and you're rejecting God, but you're taking for granted that you hold all these values in common with Christians without saying that Christianity is good because you've just cut out the parts that you don't like because you yeah. want to live with your girlfriend or whatever. Yeah. I think what's really drawing people away is the fact that they know by stepping into Christianity, there's a life change, right? Mm-hmm. And there's things, there's things that are going to shape your life that are going to move you out of the things that you enjoy doing. Uh, and I, I think if that wasn't there, there, there'd be a whole different conversation. But I think what it really is, is like, I want to live my life and I don't really want to do anything else. How do I fit God into that? Rather than if I step into God, where is this going to take me in my life? And so until people are ready to make that change, we usually only see it in moments of extreme crisis, yeah. right? Like you look at a lot of what's going on in the third world and things like that. Those people are very open to God in this, this conversation of like, I need hope. Mm-hmm. Right. But it's interesting because a lot of this intellectualism tends to be a first world privilege. People yes. who are suffering don't go down these rabbit holes of like science and this and that. They're just like, I just need God. I need something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. There has to be a point. Um, mm-hmm. What do you think is the biggest strength in the church today? 
Hmm. I think um, the biggest strength, the biggest anchor that we have um, is that God's promise is he's already won. You know, Mm. there's already that victory. Um, And it's us to be good stewards of that. Um, So I think, I guess there's, there's kind of two. There's one is that God's already won and and we have that and we are just continuing to spread this. So that one's outside of ourself is that the strength that the church has comes from the unlimited, unloving, you know, our fully loving source. Um, The other is, and it kind of goes into, uh, I'll go into the argument in a little bit, but um, I think the other is the fact that we have such ease of spreading this now. Mm. Um, I think recently you had, you had someone on that said the same thing. And I was like, ah, oh, it sounds a little cliche, but I've really thought about it. I'm like, no, it, it kind of is. Yeah. You know, a lot of people talk about like, well, you know, is Christianity dying? And I don't, I don't think it's really growing. And then I'm like, I don't agree. I, it is, you know, because it's not moving on our power. It's moving on God's power through us and he's going to make it happen one way or another. Um, and so people talk about like, well, what about people in these isolated areas of the world and how do we spread the gospel? And it's just like the gospel that we're, we're preaching came to us 2000 years ago from the other side of the world in a mm. different language and tribe. I think it's working. Yeah. And, yeah. and all we're doing is circling back to its, its origins, you know? So if it can come to the United States in the two thousands, uh, you know, I think it can find these tribes and things like that. You know what I mean? I don't think it's, it's necessarily like the Christianity is dependent on us. Um, it wants to, God wants to work through us, but like his will is going to be done. And so I think one of our greatest strengths is the fact that he is backing it. And uh, physically on our side, what, what helps that is the fact that we can spread information immediately yeah. across the world. Yeah, I think I think a couple things that you said really struck me. One is that like him working through us, right? And what a gift that is to us because he could do it any way he wanted, mm-hmm. but he we get to, you know, be involved in that. But I think too the mention the idea of the victory already being God's, but us being good stewards of that victory is a really yeah. really beautiful way to put it. Like that we have this responsibility. Like the victory is ours in that it's a gift to us to get to share with God in that victory. But that, like, it's our responsibility to do what's right within the within that context of 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 the victory. And it's like, how how are we living our lives? How are we carrying ourselves in the world in regard mm-hmm. to those who, you know, the reality is God is conquering. <laughs> and so it's right. like, how do we relate to those people? And how do we say, hey, I mean, this is not this is a really crass way to put it, but like. Don't you want to be on the winning side? I mean, that's not enough <laughs> right. to get you there, right? But it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, God conquers all, and it's like, man, let's be on the side of of, of the conquering and not be the yeah. conquered. Let's submit so that we might be conquered, that we might, you know, be reborn or whatever. I'm ram- rambling. Um, I'm gonna read from Second Timothy, and then we'll get out of here. This yeah. is Second Timothy three verses one through five. Um, but know this: hard times will come in the last days. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the form of godliness but denying its power. Avoid these people. Hmm. And I just feel like that kind of goes back to what we were talking about as far as like God without God, right? And and how dangerous of an idea that is and and how we see in the last days, which we're in. I mean, because, you know, it's I, I heard somebody ask R.C. Sproul in like 1989, uh, are we in the last days? And he's like, well, yeah, we've been in the last days since Christ ascended to heaven. And she was asking a more pointed question than that. But like, yeah. you know, but, the, the, but he's right. That's where we are. We're waiting. And in the meantime, everyone is awful. <laughs> Yeah. Now I like that you pointed it out because with everything going on of this 2020 shutdown and a lot of the politics and things being so heightened, everyone's really going back and like, see, it's revelation it's yeah, right here. Right. It's like, okay, whether it is or not, like, how is it, how does that change your faith? You know what I mean? Right. Does it, does it change what we are doing? It's like, we still have to respond to the environment we're in and it's not going to redirect my faith. You know, one of the things I love 
and is Daniel when they passed this new law. And it said he prayed as usual three times a day. He did not change his routine just because the world was falling apart. And I think it's the same thing for us. Yeah, it's our it's like you're saying, it's our responsibility to um to worship the Lord and whether it's whether Christ returns tomorrow or in another thousand years or mm-hmm. you know, that sort of thing. Like you're saying, that doesn't really we should always be prepared for him to return. And that I think is I think that's the key and that's how it can affect our faith. Right. Uh, um yeah. Steve, thank you for coming on. It was a blast. Yeah, I had a really so good much. time. Um and then uh, when do you have any idea when the book is coming out? I'm shooting for August. Okay. Um I still need to work with editor publisher and uh, I'm finishing a little bit of the writing. I don't have too much left. I've already got about 200 pages written. So once I get through that and start working with editor publisher, my goal is August okay. and uh, that way it should be available by the 20th anniversary of 9/11. Oh, okay, wow. Yeah. Whoa, 20 years. That's Yeah, I know. That's pretty nice. old. Yeah, I do too. Every day, my back tells me <laughs> that it's been that long. Uh, yep. Yeah. So be on the lookout. At end of summer, early fall, Calloused Heart. Uh, Steve, thanks again for coming on. It was awesome. super fun. Yeah. Thank you.